You're listening to the Night Demon Network. Go to nightdemon.net slash subscriber to unlock more exclusive content. Welcome to the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast. I'm your host, Nesbitt, and in the last few episodes, we dug into the formation of Night Demon, the first EP, the first live show, and Night Demon was transitioning from a fun side project to a recording band and eventually to a live act, but a lot happens between that first live show and Night Demon becoming a metal powerhouse that it is today. This is Night Demon, the early years. So March, April, and May of 2011 were extremely important months for Night Demon. They formed, they recorded a four-song EP, played their first show. So Night Demon, they basically, they start as a fun jam, and gradually you can see them becoming more and more of a serious sort of project. Kind of created something tangible that would exist in the metal world, uh, this self-titled EP. Then playing live... They're now a real band, and I think by this point, they're already way more successful and productive than any of them had imagined when they formed for that first jam. So if you look at Night Demon's gig history, it's seven or eight months before the next live show, uh, but a lot happens in that time. Here's Jarvis Leatherby. In the history of Night Demon, it's been known that not much activity happened between 2011 and really 2013 when we really started to get going or when the EP was officially released, I guess you would say, in the summer of 2013. But actually, a lot did happen in that period of time. And looking back on it now, it's kind of crazy to think about how many plates we had spinning at the same time and and how we were able to pull anything off at all. So... When just just to backtrack a little bit, when we're talking about Night Demon, you know, kind of having this great idea to form in February of 2011, and then going right into it and just casually rehearsing and writing a great song each rehearsal, and then doing this EP, then turning down the Accept show, and then ended up playing our first gig. You know, it's it's like I've said before, we had no ambition to be a serious band. We were having a good time. And after that first show happened in May 2011, you know, after we had turned down the offer to open for Accept, I think we had kind of dumbed down our ambitions for this band even more so because we were just kind of just playing a local show. So I would say after that point, I mean, if you were to tell at least probably Brent and I that, 
you know, hey, the band is over. You know, you guys got together and had some fun and you wrote four great songs and you got to play a show and you got to cover Angel Witch and Diamond Head and Golden Earring. And you got to do that in front of your friends. I mean, I think, honestly, we would have been really happy at that. You know, the 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 benchmark was already was already met at that point. I mean, we were just so proud of that recording and those songs just for ourselves, for our own personal enjoyment, because again, we just didn't think anybody would, would care about this stuff at all. So during this period, the members of Night Demon are individually very busy with their main projects. And during this period, there's also a big change for one member. So I do remember we did rehearse, I believe, I don't know, maybe a couple weeks later, sometime in early June, we did do another Night Demon rehearsal. And I I don't think anything happened there. I think we were just kind of jamming through the songs and going through the motions. And, you know, at that point, I think Pat was getting ready to, to, to move up you know, to move up north, which is, you know, he was moving to Arcata, California, which is about an 11-hour drive from where we are. So getting together to casually jam on weekends is, is was not something that was going to happen. And, you know, I had already, I had just released Soul Music Volume 1 from Jeff Hershey and the Heartbeats. And that was, you know, really what was, what was kickstarting that career and that band That's right, I said it It's been a long time Since you came into my arms Now you're gone So the timing couldn't have been worse to have these two things. Well, you know, I say that, I say that, but in hindsight, you know, timing is is everything. Everything does happen for a reason, as cliche as that sounds. Um, but... You know, we did stay very busy during during those first few years of the band, albeit it may not have all been Night Demon stuff. I don't know why you change your So remember that at this time, Jarvis Leatherby's main focus was the heartbeats. Uh, They had just released their first full-length album, and they're really picking up steam. In July of 2011, the heartbeats got on a regional tour with a band called The New Master Sounds. Manager Kent Sorrell, um, who was actually the old manager of the band No Motive that I was in, he had a he was managing uh, like the Neville Brothers, the Funky Meters, a lot of this kind of like 
New Orleans sound stuff, and he was he was also managing the New Master Sounds, which was a UK band. And the heartbeats kind of fit with what they were doing. So him being an old friend just threw me a bone. And with our record that had just come out, this has been a really big thing for for us. So we ended up doing a show um, at the Troubadour. We did the Belly Up Tavern down uh, down south near San Diego, and then Moe's Alley up north uh, in Santa Cruz. And I mean, it was just a great run of shows. And uh, to be able to play the Troubadour with this band, I mean, was awesome. You know, it's a legendary venue that I grew up going to see many shows. And of course, you know, like Guns N' Roses broke there and Black Sabbath played there. It was just cool to be able to do that with the heartbeats. having problems with the band at the time as far as all of my guys were sidemen in that band. So I had my key guys playing on the albums, but a lot of people just couldn't make the shows. So I ended up getting uh, a new drummer for that those shows. I had a different guitar player for, for one of the three shows. I had Max from No Motive filling in on bass for the three shows. So it's like no rehearsal. It was just, I was... <laughs> I, I hate to say that I was getting tired of that because this is something, this is a trend that would continue through the heartbeats. I never did, uh, I never had the same lineup on consecutive tours at all. Every tour I did had a different, had a different band. Um, sometimes this, some of the same guys would come in and out, but, and I had some great players, but that's just the way it was, you know, when you're working with professional musicians and, they have other gigs that they're obligated to, and that's just that's just the way it is. So, uh, you know, being having a band like Night Demon around, having the camaraderie of, and you know, just having two other guys, and being being in that situation again, I kind of realized that, like, look, I'm I'm a band guy, so, but these are the things that you know I'm better at these days as far as trusting my instincts and. Back in those days, it was a lot. It was a lot tougher. I had a lot more pressure on me. I had a lot more. Um, I don't know. I was younger too, and 
I just feel that I put so much work into the heartbeats that I wasn't about to to scrap that all. I had to see it through. I had to see it through. But as I've said before, you know, you have to be able to look at your life and trade in good for great. You have to be able to do that. It's hard sometimes. You really have to just kind of, you have to look at your situation almost from the outside in. But then at the same time, you got to go with what feels right inside. Although everybody around you, or again, maybe your past might tell you that it's wrong, but you have to be able to trade good for great when that comes along. But at the time, we all had other things on the go. I'm, I don't regret any of the decisions that we made, but there was definitely a loss of momentum with Night Demon when uh, we didn't carry on after that show. So in a nutshell, I mean, you've got like, you know, three or four months tops activity with Night Demon in, in 2011. And I mean, it was a fucking fireball. It was, it was amazing. But, but like, like I said, it was so good that we were pretty much satisfied by the end of that first show. So after July, I did these shows with the new Master Sounds with the Heartbeats opening. I felt really good about that outing. We had gone out and supported a bigger band in the scene and we had actually gotten out and, and played out of our area pretty much for the first time in that band. And, you know, actually <laughs> uh, a funny thing happened. And I'll say this, a lot of people don't realize this, but, you know, when you're on the stage, you know, sometimes it's like, yeah, you just see, you know, the stage lights in your eyes and you can only see the first few rows. But normally that's not the case. You can actually see everybody. And, um, you know, I'm always one of those guys that's kind of like, I notice everybody in the audience when I can see them. And I'm kind of like, hey, why did that person leave? Or, hey, I know that guy. Or, you know, I remember when, uh, uh, speaking of the Troubadour, funny, uh, Night Demon, we played the Troubadour uh, in, in 2018 for the Decibel Metal and Beer Fest. We played with Armored Saint. And uh, somebody told me before we went on, hey, Dave Mustaine's in the house. And then I saw him upstairs at the bar. And uh, while we were playing, I watched him walk out. <laughs> so it's one of those things. And the same thing happened at the Troubadour in 2011 when we op- when the Heartbeats opened for the new Master Sounds. So uh, I actually saw my mom leaving the room. Yeah, so, you know, I had to stop my own show because I'm like, what the hell? My mom's my mom came down to Hollywood to support me and she's going to leave the room while I'm playing. So, and <laughs> you know, obviously the security issue, I didn't know what was going on. I thought my mom was actually getting kicked out of the show. So Jarvis is full on with Jeff Hershey and the Heartbeats. 
with the new album just released. But uh, meanwhile, at around the same time, future members of Night Demon, Dusty Squires and Armand John Anthony, are also releasing an album. So New Liberty releases the album Uninvited. July 26, 2011, at Salzer's Records, New Liberty plays an in-store to celebrate the release of The Uninvited. And they play their album release party at the Bombay on July 30th of 2011, the same club that Night Demon had just played its first show at earlier that year. So Dusty and Armand and their band New Liberty are really hitting their peak. Here's Armand John Anthony. Well, that was pretty much the heyday of that band. You know, we were we were tearing Ventura apart at that point. We were all over the place. Um, we were recording, rehearsing at the studio. Those guys were here. Basically, I, I let them live in my parking lot for a while in their motorhome. So, you know, when they had nothing going on, which they really didn't have anything going on after their guitar player decided not to uh, stick with the journey that they decided to go on by staying out here. Um, I put the guys to work. I brought them in here because at the time when I was, you know, we were we had gotten to a point where the walls were built in here and everything like that. But there was a lot of finishing work to be done. And, uh, you know, my partners, Robin and Aaron, who had helped me build this place and we'd done most of the work, you know, they were kind of working a lot. They had regular jobs that they had to work during the week. So the only time that we had to work on the studios was on the weekend. So, you know, for me, it was like I didn't have another job. So there was a lot of downtime and I couldn't do a lot of the work myself. You know, at that point, it was like, you know, doing wall stuff, hanging carpet, all that kind of shit. So I told those guys, well, hey, man, if you're here, come on in. I'll put you to work and uh, I'll, we'll listen to some Thin Lizzy, which they had not really known about. And that was one thing that I brought to that band was that that kind of feel the swing thing. I remember talking to Dustin about that and saying that, you know, you're great. You're really good. But, you know, you got to learn how to swing. And so that was kind of how I molded him into some of what the drummer that he is now uh, by teaching them about Thin Lizzy as we were working on the studio. So, you know, during that time, you know, as that time went on and on, it was like they weren't, it was, we had had, I had had a couple of friends, like I was like, you guys should meet this guy. Maybe he could be a good fit on guitar. And, and, you know, it didn't really, nothing was really working out. So it got to the point where I just kind of stepped in and said, Hey, you know, I'll help you guys write some songs. Let's do it. You know, fuck it. I like what you're doing. I got nothing else going on at the time. I was in between bands. Um, so we would start jamming in here. And before you knew it, we were writing songs. And over that summer of 2010, after they had moved here, they moved here Memorial Day weekend, I think was basically the landing date. Uh, so we're talking July probably June, July, August, we started writing the songs that ended up on the Uninvited.
then we finished the record. I recorded and mixed the whole thing and played on it and did the whole the whole deal over here. You know, we weren't really looking to try to find a label or anything at the time. We just decided to self-release it, you know. So we put it out. We pressed a thousand CDs. And we did a CD release show at Salzer's Records in the parking lot, which was awesome. Uh, we did a big release. A bunch of people came out. You know, we had already been pretty known around the scene from playing the bars and uh, ripping it up. You know, what we would basically do is we would we jam over here, you know, in the studio, work on some songs. And then we basically go downtown after we were done re- rehearsing or recording and party. And there was a Monday night uh, open mic thing at the sewer that our legendary friend, sort of the Ventura's Lemmy, his name is Billy Johnson, he was there and he would run this open mic. And so we'd go down there and basically just get on the fucking stage and and test out these new songs and you know it would always turn into a new liberty show (laughs) yeah you know so i felt bad for anybody else that wanted to play those nights that we showed up because you know i'm sorry but we just tore the place apart you know it would be like some old blues guy some old man that wanted to play some blues shit or something just waiting on the sidelines and here we are just like high kicks and shredding and fucking taking shots on stage and ripping everything up and then sorry all right good night Most of the time would wait and play at the end of the night just because we knew that it was going to be like that. So we got that reputation. So yeah, the uh, CD release party, we did a in-store at Salzer's Records in Ventura on July 26, 2011. We played outside in the parking lot. They had set up a stage out there for us and uh, it was really, really cool, man. Um, it's cool. There's a video clip, a couple pictures where you can see the late Jim Salzer owner of the uh, record store and famous, I mean, producer, uh, 
uh, promoter. He had fucking booked Hendrix back in the day and, you know, the doors and everything like that in Ventura. He was like the main guy doing the rock stuff around there. So it was really cool that they let us do that there, you know, for being a, a small band. But, you know, we were local and, well, at least I was local. Those guys were local pretty much at that time. So, and uh, yeah, we had done a Kickstarter to raise money to put out that album. And I found the old page for that with the little trailer of us telling the story of the band and all that. So that's pretty cool to look back on. We got together about maybe five years ago. Things evolved into a four-piece band that we were at the time. Unfortunately, for what used to be a very vibrant rock and roll city, Philadelphia really doesn't offer that anymore. And we realized that, you know, if we want to do anything with this in music, then we have to go to the other side. So we saved up everything that we could and took off. Back there is our, our trailer with everything we own. You try to steal it, we're gonna you up. just in from Memphis, there are Egyptians, and that is a pyramid. We are at a, a point where we cannot afford to go the extra step where we want to go with producing and manufacturing our album. We basically spent all of our money to get out to California. Ugh. When it rains, it pours. And, you know... This is a band where not everybody has jobs, you know, and has like other lives. I mean, this is it. And unfortunately, you know, you can get grants for school and you can get grants for, you know, building science experiments or whatever, but we don't do that here for musicians. We want to keep doing this for a while. So, we can have a little bit of help get this thing moving and we can get back on our feet where we need to be. I guess maybe we are trying to show people that you can have fun and also do something you love. We love to play music in front of people. And it's like if it makes you laugh, if you're laughing when you hear it, it's doing exactly what it's supposed to. You're supposed to come out and party. You're supposed to have a good time. So when we play, people are a lot more receptive. Then the following, I think it was Saturday night, July 30th, we did the official party at Bombay.
that was another thing where they had a stage set up outside in the parking lot. It was a big killer party. I think it was during their, they have this thing called the beach party every year. And, you know, it's a beach theme kind of thing. And they always have live bands and everybody just goes nuts. So we did that there, and uh, I remember we pretty much played the whole album from top to bottom, probably some covers. Um, our good friends Kyle Hunt and King Gypsy opened the show. Everybody was there. I know Jarvis was there, the whole crew, the whole city, everybody that was into good music was there. So yeah, really fun times, man. Hey guys, Nesbitt here. If you'd like to support Night Demon and this podcast, the best way to do it is to become a Night Demon subscriber. Not only will you be doing your part to support a true heavy metal band out there really living it, you'll also gain access to a ton of extras. Bonus audio content, a subscriber-only merch store with rare items from the band's archives, you can stream never-before-heard demos and unearth live concerts from the live vaults, Communicate with the other Night Demon diehards on an exclusive subscriber forum and gain early access to all press releases, album pre-orders, new merchandise, and a ton more. And another thing that I think is pretty cool is Night Demon will be donating 10% of every subscription fee to the Metal Cares Foundation, which is a charitable fund the band started in 2014 to aid those in our metal community. So head over to nightdemon.net slash subscriber and join us as we make heavy metal history together as one. And on a side note, I'll personally think you're a great A badass. <laughs> so Jarvis and future members of Night Demon, Dusty and Armand, they're all busy touring with their main bands off of newly released albums. But another member of Night Demon, Brent Woodward, is also just as busy with his full-time band, The Fucking Wrath. So the band Night Demon, not a lot going on, but the members of Night Demon, extremely, extremely busy. Here's Jarvis. So for the rest of the summer of 2011, nothing really happened. And I was just in heartbeats land. You know, I had kind of just, you know, this record had come out and I was really pushing hard and just trying to get a label to distribute this thing and put this out in Europe. That was my main focus at the time. And I was really just trying to get as many gigs as I could with the heartbeats and get some traction and keep pushing. I remember that Pat had moved away to kind of get set up up north so he can start the fall semester going to art school up there. Brent was doing a lot of shows with the fucking Wrath. They had just gotten done recording their next LP over here at Satellite Studios, which is now the captain's quarters. Um, so, you know, Armand engineered and produced that record. Here's drummer of the fucking Wrath, John Criar. Hey guys, what's going on? This is John Carrar, former drummer of Night Demon, current drummer of Detoxy and Dad Brains. And I sing in Stalag 13, and I also sing in another band called Tight Night. I was in a band called The Fucking Wrath. 
and I played drums in that band. And we started as a three-piece. Um, we all lived on the same block, and we all worked at the same record store. So we started the fucking Wrath as like after work, fun, get stoned, let's play some stuff. And so that's how that band started. We put out a record, we toured the East Coast a couple times, and then uh, we started kind of getting better at what we were doing and wanted to add a second guitar player. And in comes Brent Woodward. He was someone I didn't really know. He wasn't from Ventura or Oxnard. He was from the desert, the high high desert. And uh, he moved out here because he was friends with one of my old friends, Pat Bailey, who is the first drummer of Night Demon. And so he moves out here. We do this thing every year. It's a cover band, Halloween parties. And he did a minor threat cover band. And I was doing a Descendants cover band. And we're like, oh, yeah, we want that dude who's playing guitar in the minor threat band. Let's get him. And so he knew Craig Kasamas, our singer, somehow. And so he started coming over, jamming, eventually moved on the same block with all of us and uh, became a member of the fucking Wrath. And we recorded an album. First, we recorded an EP called the Terrifier EP. Um, it's on TP Records. And then we also did a full length called Valley of the Serpent Soul. So let's talk about the fucking Wrath. The album Valley of the Serpent's Soul. The sound of the fucking wrath was a cross between everything good in metal, at least in classic metal. Got some thrash in there, got a heavy Sabbath doom influence, and um, who was in the band? So you had Craig Kasamis on vocals and guitar, Brent Woodward who at the time was on guitar and also was in the early stages of Night Demon, of course, John Kruar, who played drums, and Nick Manassian, who played bass. Uh, I just got involved with the band, obviously because we're all friends, and I was the guy that recorded everybody in town. So uh, that was how I worked with those guys. I had also worked with some previous bands that Craig, the singer, was in, a band called Ox vs. Thunderbird. I remember doing an album for them or an EP or something back at the old studio, Satellite Studios. But this album was done at the Captain's Quarters in the first year that I had going. I had it going on here, um, 2011. Yeah, that was pretty pretty early on. We had gotten the keys to the building in the late 2009. Spent a good part of 2010 building stuff, getting everything dialed in. And then uh, 2011, yeah, it was a pretty good year over here. Um, you know, this is 10 years ago. My mind is not as sharp as it was, so I don't really have many stories. Besides just an overall enjoying creating super heavy music with my buddies and probably smoking a lot of weed while we were doing that as well. So when we recorded Valley of the Serpent's Soul with Armand, you know, we I've been recording with Armand for a long time. Um, I think the first time I recorded them was with Missing 23rd way back when. And I think Valley, when we recorded that, he was still under the process of building the studio. I don't think it was fully complete yet. They had some walls up and, you know, it, it was good enough to record, but he was still, it's not what it is today. And um, 
you know, we just kind of, if I remember correctly, I didn't play to a click except for maybe one song that was slow. And we just kind of blasted it out. I did my drum parts and then they did the guitars and vocals and and that was that, really. It was pretty smooth. I don't remember anything crazy happening. I think maybe it took two two days to do drums. Um, it was a lot of fun. It's always fun recording with Armand. He's like the best guy to have behind the board because he has a good, you know attitude and he's very mellow and he has good ideas if you hear something he'll suggest it but doesn't necessarily get mad or anything if you're like oh, that's cool but we kind of want to do it this way but most of the time his suggestions are cool and we take them and you know go with it but for valley i just remember we practiced a lot beforehand and made sure the songs were down really good so that when we did go into record we weren't like wasting a bunch of time so I think it just went smooth. I don't remember really anything crazy other than being super stoked with how it sounded. I remember John had just gotten his, uh, he got a drum kit from DW, brand new. First time it was recorded, sounded really good. I think the track that I would bring up here would be Altar of Lies. the whole gamut of the band it's got a really good kind of chugging like gallop thing going on in the beginning the first half of the first quarter of the song or so and it breaks down into a cool uh kind of almost like a i would say that's a signature brent riff i'm pretty sure that's his his riff 
And then the last quarter of the song breaks into a total thrash kind of slayer part, which is really brutal. Gets all the heads banging. So here's the deal with the with the release of that album. Um, I had done a mix of the song Altar of Lies. And then the guys decided to go with another mixer, um, a gentleman of the name of Tim Harkins. And he had done some, worked on some pretty big records, I guess. And he had a hookup at Henson's Studios, which was Jim Henson's studio, which was formerly the home of Charlie Chaplin. And then it turned into A&M Studios. And basically that studio, pretty big, big studio, you know, all the, all the stuff you want in a uh, professional level studio. So anyway, he had had some kind of hookup there from previous work that he had done. So the guys decided to give him a shot and let him do a mix of the record because of the whole like, hey, I'm going to record this or I'm going to mix this at, you know, this big fancy studio yeah he had done a bunch of stuff with i guess he worked on some corn shit back in the day so they went with him to do the mix and i remember the first time i heard that mix i was pretty bummed actually uh listening to it now it's not as bad as i thought it was at the time i guess i just wasn't prepared for it he had gone with the really really slick sounding mix and I thought that was just totally wrong for the band. You know, it's really compressed, really uh, a lot of treble, you know, kind of sounded like a mix of a guy that, that played guitar next to a drummer in a band for way too long and lost a lot of his high end and his hearing. Nothing against the guy, but I just didn't think it was right for the record. But, you know, it wasn't my call at the final on the, on the end of it and they went, ended up going with it and I think that uh, at the end of the day they they didn't really like the mix as much but I think the name and the um, you know getting it re- mixed at that studio or whatever was just kind of a thing that, it, that 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 overshadowed what they really liked about it or didn't like about it uh, the one weird thing was uh, we used someone else to mix it Tim Harkins mixed it and I would like to listen to Armand's mix again and just hear, because Armand did a really good mix, and then Tim Harkins put his flair on it, which kind of, I don't know if he upped the sound or just made it sound slightly different, where it was more like modernized, where Armand's recording sounded way more, or his mix sounded way more like vintage in a way. I would love to maybe do another, maybe a, I don't know, 10, 15 year anniversary version of Armand's just to see what it would be, you know? So come September of that year, the fucking Wrath releases their new LP, Valley of the Serpent's Soul. I know that those guys were really excited about that record. It had amazing cover art too. Uh, they had TP Records on board putting it out and they were really behind it. They were starting to get some better shows too. And, you know, some stuff that was more out of the area. And, you know, I remember Brent really laying down some ripping solos on that record that really brought that band to another level. I mean, they were a three-piece at the time. (laughs) 
So in October of that year, basically right after that record came out, The Wrath had went on a, like a headlining U.S. tour for a month. Pretty sure the record got like L.A. LA Weekly put it in the top 10 records of that year to come out of LA metal bands, even though we're from Ventura. So the tour was good. Like it wasn't, it was good on the way out there. And then when we met up with Hole, Hole was rad, but the shows were not as good. Like we played a couple of good shows, but the guy who booked the tour didn't really know what he was doing, I don't think, because he would book us like, like I remember we played Savannah, Georgia on the same night, I think. Kylesa or someone was playing in their hometown and we were playing at the bar that no one likes anyways and then they're playing this crazy show and like it's kind of bad but you know we made the best of it we were really good friends and the whole guys were really good guys and we just had fun you know just four dudes or five dudes traveling around like you know seeing the country rocking out every night even though there might only be three or four people there we would still do it and then you know go find some fun afterwards. I drank pretty heavily on that tour, so like some of the memories are blurry 10 years later. But there is a tour diary I wrote, and um, the VC Reporter, which is like the local kind of music-free magazine that they have everywhere around Ventura, published some of my tour diaries from that, and there's some cool stuff in there. And They saw some crazy shit. I remember John Criar had a tour diary that the VC reporter, our local paper, kind of picked up his tour diary and wrote about it, which was really cool because it kind of gave, it gave like an insight to to the local scene here of what it's like to to really be out there on the road, especially at that level where you're kind of struggling. I mean, I know, I know they had some canceled shows and some weird stuff happened, but that that always happens on on you know DIY kind of tours like that. We go out to the West Coast. We play some cool shows on the way, or the East Coast. We play some really cool shows on the way out there. When we finally get to New York, we play a really cool um, CMJ Fest show, which was the TP Records showcase with a bunch of bands on TP. And we did really good. People were stoked. Um, and then the next night, we played in Manhattan at Andrew WK's bar, at the Santos Party House with Youth of Today of all bands. cool night. It was like Youth of Today, Kailessa, um, I forget who else, but it was a really mixed bag of bands. And that show went off really good. People were stoked. People liked the record. I remember talking to Brent when they were gone, I, and they were in uh, New Orleans on Halloween, and you know, I, I wasn't there, so so I'm not going to say what happened, but you know, uh, basically somebody I think they they might have seen somebody get shot and and murdered on on Bourbon Street. Uh real heavy shit, man. 
And that's, that's the thing, you know, when you, when you go out there and you, and you travel the world and you travel the, the vast United States, especially you just, sometimes you end up in, in some, in some places where you, where you see some things and, and things happen. But, uh, you know, I think during this pandemic, we've all kind of learned that, you know, yeah, you know, you can try, you can try and, and be in solitude in the safety of your home for a couple of years, but it's, it's really no way to live. So you, you got to go out there and you, you got to experience life. And that's one of the great things that, that touring does. But for the most part, touring is always fun if you're with good people. And luckily I was, I was with good people on that tour and it was nothing but good times. So the end of 2011 saw all the current and future members of Night Demon involved heavily in their main projects. But right around then, the call of Night Demon starts to get stronger and stronger. And before you know it, Night Demon begins to rise. After those guys got back from tour, me and Brent started hanging out a little bit more. Um, You know, I mean, I was still way into Heartbeats land. But I definitely miss playing with Night Demon. And I know that when he was out on that tour with the fucking Wrath, he was, you know, he had a burn CD. He was playing it for some people and they really liked it. And the guys in the band, the guys in his band really liked it actually a lot. And I was hearing from them how much they liked it as well. I remember the Heartbeats had played around Thanksgiving at a local bowling alley. Uh, We have a, a punk rock bowling tournament every year called the Turkey Bowl or the Toilet Bowl, as they call it, <laughs> the Nardcore Toilet Bowl. It's always around Thanksgiving. And, you know, our local scene is heavily punk rock influenced. But, you know, even all these guys from the fucking Wrath and from all the guys that have ever played with Night Demon, uh, you know, the punk and metal scene mesh very well here together. And, and we're all friends and we're all the same people. So, uh, but even the heartbeats, I mean, they're into that stuff and we had a very punk rock attitude in what we were doing as well. So we got asked to play this thing and, you know, I mean, it was cool. It's weird playing at a bowling alley, but we really, we lit the place up, man. And it, it, people were having a great time, but you know, I could say even, even as early as, you know, in late 2011 at this point, uh, I remember just getting off that stage and, you know, just really kind of wishing Night Demon was there playing, to be honest with you. And um, I remember talking to John Criar that evening about about Night Demon. Like, I'm just sitting here sweating in my heartbeat suit, and we're just sitting there at the bowling alley talking about Night Demon. So that night paved the way for what would be another super prolific period for Night Demon. So new songs, new riffs, and a flurry of activity were about to take place as Night Demon becomes more and more of a focus of these guys' lives. And that's where we're going to pick it up next week with new Night Demon songs written and demoed, including some that will go on to be on Night Demon's first full-length album, Curse of the Damned, as Night Demon it slowly goes from side project to full-time focus for these guys. Uh, as always, be sure to check out the subscriber section on nightdemon.net for a ton of bonus content, including John Creer's tour diaries, and yes, he did witness a murder on that tour. It's a pretty crazy story. Um, we have a live video of the Heartbeat show at the Troubadour, live video of new Liberty's two album release shows, a full video of the fucking Rast set at their Manhattan show from October 2011, uh, the full track of Altar of Lies, Armand's Mix, and a ton more, all at nightdemon.net. 
Until next time, this is Nisbet signing off. Thanks for listening to the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast. Head over to nightdemon.net, click on the subscriber tab, and sign up to access exclusive weekly bonus content. If you would like to donate to support the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast, you can do so through PayPal at paypal.me slash nightdemonmetal. Additionally, if you have not already done so, please subscribe, like, rate, and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. All hail, Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast listeners. This is Dusty Squires chiming in to tell you about my brand new signature sticks from the London Drumstick Company. I've dreamt of having my very own drumsticks ever since I was a wee lad, and LDC made that a possibility for me. Founded in 2016 in London, England, the birthplace of heavy metal, the London Drumstick Company has trailblazed a path through the music industry and taken the drummer world by storm. When I met them for the first time, they knew their product was going to withstand the beatings of a Night Demon show. They took the time to work with me on getting everything just right. The balance and weight of my sticks are the same no matter what, and the durability is bar none the best I've ever had. I know my sticks will last through the set night after night. I'm truly honored to work with a company that caters to their players the way LDC does. Their innovation and attention to detail is what separates them from the rest of the stick makers out there. Their custom stick sleeves are unbelievable and really make the entire presentation complete. Wait until you see the design they came up with for me. It blew my mind and was a surprise to say the least. They have all kinds of amazing swag, including hoodies, t-shirts, drummer shorts, drum keys, stick bags, towels, face masks, practice pads, and much, much more. Even if you're not a drummer, you can be a part of Demon History and order my brand new signature sticks direct from their website. How cool is that? And to top it off, the London Drumstick Company are giving an exclusive offer to the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast listeners. Go to londondrumsticks.co.uk and receive a 15%, 15% store-wide discount using promo code DEMONSTICKS. All capital letters, no spaces, DEMONSTICKS. D-E-M-O-N-S-T-I-C-K-S. I can't thank everyone there enough for the opportunity to be a part of their family and for them trusting me with their amazing products. See you metal maniacs on the road very soon. And yes, the wood chips will be flying. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Visit our website at monstersmadnessandmagic.com to stay up to date on all the dark dealings within the sanctuary of the strange.
Enjoy the show. Hey, Metalheads. I'm Mark, and I host the Metal Forge. Let me tell you about the show. The Metal Forge features the best underground metal from all over the world. We spend every week with a different artist with interviews, in-depth conversations, and most of all, the music. We also feature audience interactivity where you can submit your questions to the upcoming guests. New episodes are out every Friday at noon Eastern Time at MetalForgeRadio.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Want to know what's going on in the world of music? Then tune in to the Nothing Shocking Podcast, a non-genre-based, all-ages-friendly rock and roll program. Join us weekly for interviews with all your favorite rock stars from the mainstream to the underground. You can find us at nothingshocking.libsyn.com or anywhere you download podcasts. Okay, Metalheads, you've been complaining that there has not been a channel that plays all of the heavy metal videos from past, present, and future for years and years at this point. Well, that time is over. Heavy Metal Television is back. HeavyMetalTelevision.net is the website. Go there. You can see videos playing 24-7, 365, all the time. All the best from the old school, the new school, and everything in between. Check it out, HeavyMetalTelevision.net. It is where the metal is. 